Hello and welcome. It's our bonus Q&A episode of Books of the Year here with best-selling author Kate Moss, who hopefully you heard on our previous episode talking about uh, the ghost ship. I didn't actually get to ask you. You're not sponsored by Adnams Brewery, are you? <laughs> well, who make the most splendid beer. Uh, alcohol version and non-alcoholic version called Ghost Ship. When uh, the campaign is announced and the book launches on the 6th of July, you will notice that I'm not sponsored by them, but there is a collaboration with them. Oh. <laughs> I don't drink beer. I should probably shouldn't say uh, that. It's a very... Sen- get all your books <laughs> yeah, to yeah. be the same name <laughs> as a When beer. you say that, sign in the next book, the fourth one is set... You know, most people don't know this, that in part... We have a South African wine industry because of the Huguenots. So the research for the last book in the series is going to be terrific. Oh. It's going to be great fun. Uh, so question number one in our uh, Books of the Year uh, Q&A, what is the last book, Kate, that you really, really enjoyed reading? Oh, God, I enjoy so many I books. Don't, but I don't want yeah. something that is just, yeah, that was quite good. Yeah, something yeah, really, that you then really enjoyed. Rang up people or bumped into people and said, yeah. you have to read this. I... Really, really enjoyed reading, rereading, Sleeping Murder, Agatha Christie, Miss Marple. Um, it's the last of the Marples that were published, and it was published posthumously after she had died in the 1970s. But she wrote it during the Second World War. She wrote a Poirot and a Marple during the Second World War in case she died in bombing and her characters were not given an ending, and her readers would be deprived of an ending. So it's set in the 30s, and it's extraordinarily modern because it is a recovered memory syndrome novel. And uh, when I was researching my novel, The Ghost Ship, there is an element of the lead character, Louise, what can she remember? Is she remembering things? Is she suppressing things? How do they come out? And I suddenly thought, God... Agatha Christie did a brilliant recovered memory story in Sleeping Murder. So I went back and read that and it was so clever and so good. And I love Miss Marple anyway, as you know, but it it was just incredibly subtle. The way in which a certain shape of hands or a light uh, falling on a face can bring back a whole memory that you thought was lost. So Sleeping Murder, Agatha Christie, Last Marple. Do, do you tend to read more fiction or non-fiction or, or both at the same time? That We find ourselves reading, I'm reading non-fiction and fiction at the moment, both at the same time. What, what about yourself? I read both um, at the same time. Much of my non-fiction is to do with research mm-hmm. and for the period of time that I'm writing about and getting into, but I also... I'm curious. So if I hear something or um, on the radio or a podcast and I think, oh, that sounds really interesting. So I read an incredible memoir uh, by Abby Morgan called This Is Not A Pity Memoir. And she's the great writer of The Crown and many other things. And all the time that she was being this dazzling, brilliant person, her beloved partner had had a brain tumour and collapsed. And when he was saved, so that seemed great, when he woke up, he had no idea who she was. So I just and heard was, and was convinced that she, she was in, uh, yeah. she was an imposter yeah. and pretending to I mean, be Abby Morgan. I mean, just extraordinary. And then she was also diagnosed with cancer. And the thing was, I, it's not normally the sort of thing, but she's such a brilliant writer. So I, that is the sort of thing I would think. Oh, I must go and get that. And I listen to podcasts and reviews and things and think. But I read in bed every single night, fiction. And so I read more fiction, I would say, because, you know, it's that Victorian thing, you shouldn't read a novel in the morning. You know? Is it? What? Yeah, it's the idea, you should never let your wives or servants read novels in the morning. It's that kind of idea that it, it's an indulgence. So I, I always feel slightly guilty. Unless it's work, 
I, I never feel I could sit around in the day reading a novel, whereas non-fiction, <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> yes, I think that's very interesting. Yeah. That's probably a very Huguenot. Yeah, um, very possibly. Or, yeah. The Huguenot work ethic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, do you work well with deadlines? Yes. and What would your publisher and editor say? They would be laughing and I <laughs> obviously would be quoting the Douglas Adams, the sound yes. of them rushing mm. by. Um, I am very, very disciplined and I work every day, all every, all year. I, you know, I don't... Christmas Day? Qu Christmas Day. My mother used to say Christmas Day or raining. She works every day, Christmas Day or raining. My mother did not talk like that, but, you know, that was the <laughs> sentiment. Um, but, you know, in that, if you're lucky enough to find yourself in a position where you do the thing that you love for your job, then it's not working in quite the same way. So when I say I work every day, it means that I might be reading a bit of research or making a note or something. But I am good at deadlines, even though I always miss them in that. Hey, <laughs> right, um, <laughs> that's not quite the same. I think it's exactly the same, in that they build in oh, right. the slippage. So they say um, July the 1st, but you know they actually mean, mean August September. the 20th. Yes, yeah. exactly. Right. Or actually, I did once in a contract have my delivery date as August the 32nd. Very because we just good. knew that I was, there was no way I was going to get it in. But I do, I love them because I do, it's really stupid after all these years. I'm in my 60s. I should have learnt every book is always an essay crisis. However hard I work, try, it ends up as an essay crisis at the end with me not ever getting dressed, writing every day, not going to sleep. But I now have worked out that I need that threat of failure, that I've left it too late to deliver this book in order to access the thing inside me that I need to make it my book. Anyone who, who listened to uh, the previous episode where you were talking about um, the ghost ship will know that you do tons and tons and tons of research. So you obviously spend a lot of time in, in libraries, and I was wondering which is your favourite library to spend some time in. Well, I love the British Library, of course, just because you feel you're walking in the footsteps of so many extraordinary people who've who've walked, obviously not in that space for all that long, but the books within there and the idea that there are so many books in the archive. I once saw the, was shown the Melisande Psalter, uh, which is the one book that we have from the great, un, you know, forgotten Queen of Jerusalem of the 12th century. And just to look at that and mm. think... This book, <laughs> no, it's it's that for me. The Bibliothèque Nationale, of course, in in uh, France, uh, the archives in Toulouse, but also I spend a lot of time in museums. For the ghost ship, I spend a great deal of time in Amsterdam, and the Museum of Amsterdam is incredible interpretation of how essentially because they accepted the Huguenots in. Uh, this tiny little country that was at war with Spain all of this time became a global superpower. And they probably wouldn't have done that without the Huguenots because they boosted the population. They brought so many skills with them. So it's, you know, there are various different places that I adore. Um, and you learn just as much from museums um, as you do from the libraries and the archives, oddly, because you kind of see the faces of ordinary people on the walls and you see... That everybody, for example, you know, has a certain sort of plate or is eating, eating a certain sort of piece of food. And that's quite a quick way to uh, get the granular texture of life in a particular period. But I love, I love research. You'll not be surprised to know. <laughs> it's the moment you get to, though, where you know that you're putting off writing. You know, when you think, if I only know what buckle he would have on his shoe. I'm going to go to Amsterdam <laughs> yes, to find exactly. out. That's right. And it's like, maybe sit down and at your, your desk. Your editor is saying, yeah. no, yeah, yeah, yeah. no. <laughs> 
That's what Google is for. Um, yes. So we always like to, you need to put your headphones on uh, for this because uh, we have uh, a question. We always try and get these questions if we can. A question from fellow author and fan. Here's a voice note from this year's chair of the Women's Prize for Fiction, Louise Minchin. Hello, Simon and Matt, and hello, Kate. As you know, Kate, I'm a massive fan of your books and the amazing things that you do for other writers as well. What I want to know from you is how do you feel when one of your characters has died? Do you feel guilty or sad, or what is it you feel? Oh, what a lovely question. That is a lovely question. Dep- I Depends who dies. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, it's, it's the way of settling scores, let me tell you. Um, well, there were... There are kind of two answers to that, that actually when you're writing, the story is the story. Uh, Everybody who's listening might think, well, you can decide not to kill that character, but you can't. If that is the story and that's the trajectory of their story um, and their narrative arc leads to that point, then they have to go. Uh, You know, Annie Prue once said to me, Kate, you know, if they don't move the story forward, they die. (laughs) Um, and I've, I've never forgotten that. I thought that was absolutely fine. And obviously, the, I have a very high body count in this novel. And, you know, the ghost ship, a lot of people die. In all my novels, a lot of people die. But there was one time when I was writing Citadel, and it was inspired by a true story that we know that the whole of the Carcassonne resistance was caught on the same day. So they were clearly betrayed. And on the 19th of August, 1944, they were all taken to a place outside of Carcassonne. And they were executed in an absolutely vile manner. They had hand grenades forced in their mouths so they could not be identified. I mean, an act of spite. And the Nazis, the SS, the SD, left that night. And so for the want of 24 hours, all of those parents lost their children, you know. And over the years, they've identified all the men. And they've never discovered the two women who they were. And so there's a monument in the middle of Carcassonne that has all the names of the men and the dates of birth and the dates of death, the same date, 19th of August, 1944. And at the bottom, there's this line that says, and two unknown women. And I I, I didn't find out who they were, but I knew I could write a novel about the sort of women they must have been. And when I was writing, I knew the lead character had to be one of them, of course, Sandrine. But it was only really when I got to very close to that moment, writing that terrible last scene, when... Her lover thinks that she's safe and she thinks he's safe. And it was the other woman in the room. And I suddenly realised who it had to be for the story. And I cried. And I was just like, oh, I wish it wasn't you. But it had to be her. So it's the only time that's happened to me. Okay. well, I think Louise will be pleased with that answer. That's a great answer. Um, Do you remember the first book you bought with your own money? It tends to be something that's... Because up until that point, you'll have been bought it by parents or friends or uncles or whatever. But the first time you dipped into your own pocket money and bought a book? God, I don't think I can. I'm not sure... Well, actually, (laughs) I think it probably will have been an Agatha Christie because I have a very clear memory of going on a holiday in the 1970s to Devon. And, it, of course, it was the 1970s in England and Devon, and it rained the entire time we were there. And we'd run out of all the books we'd taken with us, and my younger sisters, and we, were all, you know, we couldn't go to the beach, and everything smelt of those paraffin heaters. You know, it was one of those awful English summer holidays. And there was a bookshop there, a bookshelf there, and I took a book down, and it was The Body in the Library by this person called Agatha Christie, of whom I had not heard. And I read it, and I and I must have been like 12 or 13. I remember thinking, oh, that was rather good. I wonder if she's written anything else. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Look her up. 77 novels. Um, so I suspect 
that I bought myself an Agatha Christie when, with my money? This is a question I can probably only ask you. Okay? <laughs> and the question is this. 13th century, 17th century or 20th century? Oh, 13th. There you go. See, that's... OK. <laughs> because? There is just a majesty and a glory to that period of the Middle Ages where we see, in a way, the, the Dark Ages are over, there is a turning point, back to the turning points again, the world is becoming modern, it's the beginning of a certain type of modern age, but there is a chivalric attitude, there's horses, there's uh, fluttering pennants, and also in you know, the part of France that I write about, Languedoc, there is a society where women and men are, on the scale of things, relatively equal uh, within their class systems. And so, you know, it's it's just that wonderful moment. You know, we all see it where the, the, the queen puts out her handkerchiefs and drops it down and the joust begins. And it's not, I mean, of course, it is in real life ugly, but there is still a beauty to all of these things. So I think we have one more question each, Matt. Just choose one of those. Um... Your first reader. Everyone has that first reader. Who's yours? Uh, my husband. My husband, Greg, who is also a writer, had his first uh, thriller out last year and is just about to launch a series of cosy crime novels. He's a teacher of creative writing. I'm his first reader as well. And I always give it to him first. And then it goes to my editor and to my agent at the same time. And they are both brilliant. And they're both surprised that you've delivered just after the deadline. When you say just, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's relative, isn't it? <laughs> uh, finally, is there a piece of authorly advice that you have been given which helped you in your career and which you can share and it might help others? The most important piece of advice is this. Write every day. Now, everybody's got huge pressures on their time. They can't necessarily write their novel every day or their non-fiction book or their memoir or their life writing, whatever it is. But if you write something every day, and it could just be while you're waiting for the kettle to boil, have a pad and paper next to the kettle, describe what the steam looks like. It's like getting fit for purpose, like, you know, practicing your scales on the piano or warming up before you run a marathon if you do such things. It's about taking away the fear of the word so that when you do have the time to sit down and write the novel you've always wanted to write, your muscles know how to do it. And you're not scared to understand it. Put as many words down as you want. You can cut them all again, but you have to get it down. And also that only you can write your book. Only you can write your book. The Ghost Ship by Kate Moss is published by Mantle and is out now. Next week, uh, another Books of the Year, we're going to be joined by the journalist, writer and broadcaster Daniel Finkelstein, who is always fascinating. I hope you can join us then. Kate Moss, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Time. And uh, join us again soon. <laughs>